Well, we're continuing to progress through the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights, and tonight we begin a new chapter. Go with me to Daniel chapter 8. Well, I sure wish I could have done a better job in chapter 7 for you, and I'm sorry if I disappointed you. If I did, you're not alone because I also disappointed myself, and um, I want you to know I am putting forth the effort. I am trying my best to rightly divide the Word of God and to feed this flock when I get up here. And every message in this series in Daniel, by the way, it's taken a couple days at minimum to study and prepare. It's been very um, challenging for me, and that's good. But I just want you to know I am putting forth the effort, and tonight's no different. I'm once again not happy with how it turned out. This will end up being more informational. I feel like I'm just going to regurgitate everything we read. (laughs) But pretend like you like it and make me feel better about myself. But bear with me as we go through this. I didn't have all the answers for what we were faced with in chapter 7. And while I may not have all the answers, I can take comfort that it appears that Daniel may not have had all the answers either. Remember at the close of chapter 7, Daniel was troubled and he kept the matter in his heart. And we'll see at the end of chapter 8 that Daniel is astonished at this vision that he receives and it says, none understood it. And so, that, by the way, he says that after heavenly messengers have explained it to him. <laughs> I came across this quote this week by Oliver B. Green. In his book on Daniel, he wrote this quote, I do not claim to understand all there is to know about the book of Daniel. And any minister who makes such a claim is certainly presumptuous, end quote. Well, naturally, that encouraged me quite a bit. We don't always have to understand it all. We don't have to have an answer for everything. Remember, as you study the Word of God, the main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. And here's what we do know for sure from chapter 7. God is sovereign among the nations. He knows the end from the beginning. He is in control. And while it may not always go easy for the saints of God, God wins and will inherit the kingdom. So don't lose sleep if you find yourself unable to figure it all out. I also want to clarify something else. As I was uploading last week's message, I felt like I came across as pretty snarky regarding YouTube channels. I want you to know I'm not against YouTube channels or podcasts that deal solely with prophecy. Um, Actually, there's some that I enjoy listening to when I have the time to do so. So therefore, I don't think you're wrong if you like to listen to prophetic debates. In fact, I tell you, there's some really good information out there. And there's some preachers that are doing a really good job of provoking thought with the right attitude. And they're keeping their ministry balanced and in the right perspective. Uh, My point last week was don't get so caught up in all the prophecy that you miss God's precepts. Make sure you're getting a proper balance in your study of the Word of God, a proper diet, if you will, in God's Word. And remember what's truly important, and that's your walk with God. Now, as we come to chapter 8, the original language switches back to Hebrew. 
You may recall chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Uh, Chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And actually it begins in chapter 2 and verse 4 through the end of chapter 7. And now we're going back to Hebrew in chapters 8 through 12. So what's all that about? I believe this may be because the prophecies and the events contained in chapters 2 through 7 have to do primarily with how the world is impacted through the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. And chapters 8 through 12 are going to deal primarily with how Jerusalem and the Jews are impacted while under those four Gentile reigns. So the emphasis will shift to Jerusalem and the Jews, but the context will remain within these kingdoms. As these empires dominate the world, we'll get a view of how their rule will affect Judea. And it might help you to think of this as chapters 2 through 7, more particularly the the prophecy of the great image in chapter 2, the four beasts of chapter 7. It's really kind of a 30,000 foot flyover of the entire world as it would affect the the world at that time. And chapters 8 through 12, we're kind of dropping in altitude and Judea is coming in to focus. And so with that, let's begin in chapter 8. I think for sake of time, what I'll do is read the first 14 verses and maybe for ask you to read the rest of it as we'll finish up next time. But this is what it says beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. There was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore that he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of the transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking unto another saint, uh, said unto that certain saint which spake, 
How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Chapter 7 was in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. We see in verse 1, chapter 8 begins, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, he was the last king of Babylon, which we saw at the conclusion of chapter 5. As I mentioned at the beginning of chapter 7, this information is significant because believing Jews would have been putting it together that their 70-year captivity should be coming to an end here soon, which they would have gathered from reading the prophet Jeremiah. Therefore, they may have also wondered if the Messiah was going to come on the scene at the same time in connection with their departure from captivity, since Jeremiah also wrote about the new covenant. Remember, this was always an issue with their view of the Messiah's arrival. They believed that the Messiah would bring them out from under Gentile dominance and restore to them the kingdom of Israel. And since they were going to be released from captivity, they might have thought it would be in conjunction with the arrival of the Messiah. And we'll get deeper into this when we get to chapter 9, and so I'm not going to get huge into this right now. But in chapter 9, God's going to give Daniel a very specific timeline unto Messiah the Prince. And so I, I think he's doing that because their mindset was the Messiah should be coming. So I believe God gave Daniel these visions to reveal how they should not expect the Messiah's arrival immediately after their captivity. And even though they would be permitted to return to the land, they should still expect to endure tribulations and afflictions and distress and all kind of trials in their future while under the control of these four or three, because Babylon now is in the past, but or is about to be, while they're under the control of these empires. We also read in verse 1 how this vision appeared unto Daniel after that which appeared to him at the first. And nearly all agree that this is a reference to what we just covered in chapter 7. And so I think there may be something here that is telling us these are going to tie together. I don't know, but it seems to suggest that to the reader. And in verse 2, he sees himself in Shushan of Elam in the palace. If you were here with us during our series through the book of Esther, then you know that Shushan was the capital city of Persia. And it would have been located in modern-day Iran. While Daniel, So what's happening here, while Daniel was physically in Babylon, in his vision, he's in Shushan. And I looked up the differences, uh, or I looked up the distances between the two locations, and on, if I averaged them all together, it came up to, because there's varying opinions, it came up to 225 miles to the east of Babylon. Oddly enough, when I first searched for the distance between Babylon and Shushan, I was given the distance between Babylon, New York, and Shushan, New York. <laughs> and get this, the driving distance was 226 miles. Now listen, somebody who's big into prophecy can run with that. Amen. <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything, but I had to tell someone because that's pretty cool. So here's Daniel in Babylon, and in this vision, he's transported to the palace in Shushan located in the Elam province. 
And by the river Uli, uh, some pronounce it Uli, uh, which most believe to be the Karkay, am I saying that right? The Karkay River in Iran. And while there, he receives this incredible vision of a ram and a goat. In verse 3, there is a ram standing before the river with two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. In verse 4, he sees the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. No other beast can stand before it. None could deliver out of his hand, but this ram does according to his will and became great. As Daniel's considering that, he sees a he-goat coming from the west over the whole earth, and it doesn't touch the ground, and it had a notable horn between its eyes. In verse 6, the goat came toward the ram and ran unto him in the fury of his power. In verse 7, the goat was moved with collar against the ram, or he came against him very angrily, very bitterly, against the ram and smote him and broke both of its horns. And if you don't know, horns in the Bible are most commonly a picture of power. And so the the horns here are a picture of their power. And so we read after the horns were broken, there was no power in the ram to stand. And the goat casts the ram to the ground, stamps upon it or treads upon it, and no, no one could deliver the ram from the goat. In verse 8, the goat waxes very great or becomes very great when the goat was strong. The great horn or that notable horn that was mentioned in verse 5 between his eyes, it was also broken. And in its place came up four other notable horns toward the four winds of heaven. In verse 9, from among one of these four horns came forth a little horn. And it waxed exceedingly great toward the south, the east, and toward the pleasant land, which is a reference to the land of Judea. And in verses 10 through 12, we see the ungodliness of this little horn. He fights against the host of heaven. He's able to cast some down, stamps upon them. He magnifies himself to the prince of the host. He takes away the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression and casts down the sanctuary, casts truth to the ground, and he does as he pleases. And then in verse 13, the question is asked, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And the answer is given in verse 14. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now what in the world is all this about? Well, that's what Daniel wants to know. Amen? In verse 15, look at what he says. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then, behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And so Daniel seeks first, and then he got an answer. And I think it's worthy to pause here for just a moment and remind us that we're supposed to be doing some seeking concerning the things of God. According to Proverbs 2, we are to incline our ear unto wisdom, apply our heart to understanding, and we are to cry after knowledge. We are to seek and to search for wisdom as for hid treasures. So please don't allow the preacher to do all your digging. But you have to invest some time into digging into God's Word. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Get in the Word of God. Now we have the benefit of the rest of the chapter. And we have history to look back upon. 
So some of this may not seem very troubling to us when we're reading this. But then again, here we are over 2,500 years later, and I'm not sure we have the answers yet. (laughs) Amen. We may not know as much as we think we do. But naturally, Daniel wants to know what his vision means, so he looks for an answer, and if we seek, we shall find. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And as Daniel seeks, there appears unto him one uh, as the appearance of a man. And in verse 16, this one that appears, he tells the angel Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So who is this one who has power to command the angel Gabriel? And why does Gabriel obey him immediately? Well, we aren't told who he is, but I believe this is probably an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. He commands Gabriel, and Gabriel obeys. Which we see in verse 17. And as Gabriel approaches Daniel, Daniel, he becomes afraid, and he falls upon his face. And I find it curious how holy angelic appearances in the Bible struck fear into godly people. And how this doesn't seem to be the case today with what we hear from people. Anyhow, in verse 18, we read that Daniel was in a deep sleep with his face toward the ground. Now, this isn't one of the typical Hebrew words for sleep. This is only found seven times. And I think three of those occurrences are here in the book of Daniel. Maybe four, I can't remember. But this, has, this word is not talking about being lethargic and, and tired, but it literally means to be stunned. And so I think what this is telling us is it's further highlighting Daniel's fear. That he's faced to the ground and it's as if he's in a deep sleep. He, he is struck by this appearance. Well, Gabriel begins by saying to Daniel in verse 17, Understand, O son of man, <laughs> that's easier said than done, All right. Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. And in verse 19, he says, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed, the end shall be. And so right away in the interpretation, we're being confronted with a major decision regarding the timing of the fulfillment of this prophecy. What are we to make of these statements about the end? Isn't it interesting how we're given an interpretation in the Bible and then we have to try to interpret the interpretation? (laughs) What most do today when they read language like this, they immediately look to find fulfillment at the end of all things. Or as some say, at the end of this age. But is this always the case? I don't think so. And I've already covered this thought when we were in chapter 2, so I'm not going to go through all of that again. And plus it's going to show up again in chapters 11 and 12. But I will remind you of the example from Genesis 49. Jacob gathers his 12 sons together and he's going to tell them what's going to befall them in the last days. And of course, context is everything. So when he's giving them what's going to happen to them in the last days, when he comes to Judah, he talks about the Messiah or until Shiloh come. Obviously, what Jacob is giving, at least Judah anyhow, is up to the Messiah but it's called the last days. 
And so just because we read that phrase, it doesn't have to mean end time, period. Everything that says end, last, it doesn't have to all fit the same time frame. And I think we mess up by trying to make it all force, be forced into that. So let's look at this interpretation. We'll see if we can understand a little bit about the time of the end. And actually, we'll probably get more to it next time. In my opinion, Gabriel here, he makes a lot of this very easy to understand. And if you look at verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. Man, I like those kind of interpretations. That's easy to understand. Amen. Remember what was seen in the vision in verse 3. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. Media in Persia, also known as the Medo-Persian Empire, and I'm sorry if this is starting to sound repetitive, but like I said last week, we find this throughout the book, these four kingdoms. And I know I've mentioned all this before, but just bear with me. Media and Persia are, was known also as the Medo-Persian Empire. And it was obviously made up of two confederated kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. And they are represented by the two horns of the ram. And when it says one horn became higher than the other, we know from history how the Persians would bring the Medes under their authority and rule, and these two kingdoms would become one and simply known as the Persian Empire. This was also represented by the beast like a bear in chapter 7 where it raised up on one side. Also said of the ram in the vision in verse 4 was that it was pushing westward, northward, and southward. Well, why isn't it pushing eastward? Because the Persians came from the east. And as they did, verse 4 says, none could deliver out of their hand. But he did according to his will and became great. But that wouldn't last. Look at verse 21. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And so we know this is referring to the Greek empire. And they are now coming on the scene. Remember what the goat did to the ram in the vision or what the Greeks did to the Persians in verses 5-7. through seven, The Greeks came from the west and they were running with great fury and power towards the, the west. And they smote the Persians till there was no power for them to be able to stand before them. And the Greeks cast them down and they stamped upon them. And the goat also had a notable horn between his eyes. And verse 21 identifies it as the first king, which was none other than Alexander the Great. And also recall how the Greeks in chapter 7 were likened to a leopard with four wings. And I mentioned how this describes the speed in which they traveled. And, and we are told that this goat didn't touch the ground. And I believe the reference is, it was moving fast. <laughs> And Alexander conquered with incredible speed. And as we read in verse 8, the Greeks became very great. But in time, and it would be at the time that they were at the height of their strength, that great horn was broken. And this is a reference to Alexander's death. And he died very young. I'll say more about this next week. 
He died very young, conquered the world in no time, and he died at the age of 32. Now look at verse 22. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of that nation, but not in his power. So verse 8 told us, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And if you'll recall from chapter 7, the beast representing the Greeks had four heads. And this speaks of how after Alexander the Great's death, the Greek empire would be partitioned into four quarters among four of Alexander's generals. He had no rightful heir, and they asked him before he died, who are you going to put in charge? And he said, the strongest. Well, they partitioned it up into four, gave it to four of his generals. And it says that it would not be or not in his power meaning that the Greek empire would never be as strong again as they were under Alexander. They got weaker and weaker until eventually they get defeated by the Romans. Now, when we read these kind of things here, we are told specifically that it's going to be the, Medes, the, the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. And critics of the Bible immediately say, you see, this is written after the fact. Because there's no way anyone could know that these kingdoms were going to arise with this kind of detail. And, and yet God here is calling them by name beforehand. And so the critics say, well, see, that has to be after the fact. No, listen, God knows the end from the beginning. I'll remind you, God, He foretold about Cyrus, the king of Persia, by name some 150 years before He was ever born. <laughs> He's talking about Him by name over in the book of Isaiah. And so God knows... We can trust His Word, and really what it ought to do for the child of God is it ought to build your faith in God's Word, that we can trust it, and that He knows what He's doing. We'll see more of this throughout the rest of the book, and it should bring us comfort to know that our God is already aware of all that is going to happen. Man, I'm wringing my hands, Israel, Hamas, I don't know what to do. God knows... Russia, Ukraine, I don't know what to do. God knows. Oh, man, I don't like what's happening in America. God knows. Listen, just trust Him. Nothing ever surprises God. Whoop. Well, let's keep going. Look at verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, we'll say more about that phrase next time. A king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. It begins by saying here, the latter time of their kingdom. Whose kingdom? Contextually, this must still refer to the Greeks. That may sound trivial to you, but it's very important that we don't rush through it and we understand what the context is. And so, very clearly here, in the latter time of their kingdom, we're still in the context of the Greek Empire. And I'm saying this because we don't need to jump ahead to the future man of sin that we call the Antichrist. But we are meant to stay within this context. In in the latter time, it is saying in the latter time of the Greek Empire, a king would stand up with a fierce countenance, which means the king would be furious, ruthless, and very cruel. He also would possess the ability to understand 
dark sentences. And if I understand this correctly, it means that he would be crafty, not easily deceived, though he would be able to easily deceive others. And he also would be a very skilled politician. Look at verse 24. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper in practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Now when it says... He shall prosper and practice. It means he's going to do as he pleases according to his will. We saw this same verbiage mentioned at the end of verse 12. Remember that the book of Daniel is shifting now its attention to Jerusalem and the Jews. And so when it says in verse 24 that he shall destroy the holy people, it's a reference to the Jews in Judea. And verse 9 said, This king waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. That's a reference to the land of Judea. Verse 25 it says, And through his policy, should we be concerned with politics? Yes. And through his policy also, He shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. Remember, he's he's a crafty one. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. And by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without hand. (laughs) Verses 10 and 11 say, And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon him. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away. The place of his sanctuary was cast down. And so we see that this king will take away the daily sacrifice. I got a lot of thoughts running through my head. Let me try to stay on target with my notes here. And verse 12 says, And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground. But as the end of verse 25 says, this king will be broken as well. And then Daniel's told in verse 26, Shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Verse 27, we see how all this information affected Daniel. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days after I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. You know, I'll just say right there that I think we have become too casual with the Word of God, too complacent in our Christianity. Daniel receives this vision. It's not even going to affect his lifetime. And look at how it affects him. You know, if we truly believed in hell, if we truly believed the prophecies, if you will, of the lake of fire, I think it might affect the way we witness. I think we would have a lot more people show up on Saturation Saturdays. By the way, we're doing that Saturday. 
I think it would make a difference in our life. I'm afraid we've just grown so casual with hearing it. I heard a preacher one time say, if, if God would just lid, lift the lid off of hell for 10 seconds and let us see, boy, it would change our hearts. Does the Word of God affect you? Or have you just kind of grown cold and indifferent? When's the last time you witnessed to somebody? Amen. Well, we'll have to finish this chapter next time. Um, and I'm, I'm really sorry we didn't get into more detail. But um, I think I messed up when I started preparing this, thinking I could actually get through it in one week. And I tried to cram some stuff. I, I ran out of time in preparing as a result. So next time, I want to dig deeper into this interpretation and show you how I believe that this last king that's mentioned that comes up towards the end of the Greek Empire is in fact Antiochus Epiphanes. And I do believe, for those who are going to get on to me, I do believe he does foreshadow the Antichrist. But I do not believe this chapter is a direct reference to the Antichrist. In fact, I intend to show you how I believe this chapter has already been fulfilled in its entirety. In closing, I want you to just take note how these earthly kings and kingdoms are defeated. They may be given power, but our God is all-powerful. They may be mighty, but He's almighty. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away, but there's just something about that name. And it ought to bring us comfort that the day is coming when every dictator, every ruthless leader, anyone who's ever persecuted the saints, anyone who ever practiced and prospered, as we read here, their day's coming. And they will bow the knee and they will confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus to the glory of God the Father. And don't forget that. Man, we heard some... We heard some... Heavy prayer requests tonight. People dying and babies dying and homes breaking up. And Oh, but listen, the day's coming. The day's coming. And we have a home prepared by the Lord Himself. Where He is, there shall we be also. And in that city, nothing will enter in that can defile. There'll be no sin. There'll be no pain. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no death. The world will have their time. God will allow these rulers to have their time. The day is coming when men like Mussolini and Adolf Hitler and these that we think of in modern times, they will bow the knee. And so take comfort, my friends. These saints that are mentioned here in chapter 8, they're going to go through it. And I'll try to dig into that a little bit more next time. But it's only for a season. They, they said, how long? 2,300 days. It's only for a season. And one day this will all be over. And we'll be with our Lord forever.
Would you pray with me and we'll be dismissed?